Hi, I'd like to welcome you to our show. I'm your host, Praying Medic. We're talking about life as a child of God and all things related to his kingdom. Thanks for joining us. If you're a new listener to the show, you can find articles and books and other resources on my website, www.prayingmedic.com. Now let's jump into this week's show. Some have called him a racist. Some have called him a woman hater. Others have called him a xenophobe. And if you don't know what a xenophobe is, stick around. You're about to find out. Some are concerned that he may get us involved in another war. And some have found him to be arrogant, crude, insensitive, and disrespectful. And many have pointed out that over the years, his views have changed. And that makes them wonder if he's only telling us what we want to hear so we can get our votes. We're talking today about billionaire real estate magnate, Republican presidential nominee, and the man a lot of people love to hate, Donald Trump. If you have any of these concerns about Trump, I would ask you to stick around and listen to my message. I'm going to address all of these objections that people have raised about Trump being president and some other objections I haven't mentioned. We're going to go inside the mind of Donald Trump. We're going to find out what makes him tick and try to understand why he ticks off so many people. And we're going to ask the big question, is there something about Trump that makes him uniquely qualified to sit in the Oval Office for the next four years? We have to understand the mind of a politician. And for a politician, the end game is always to get themselves elected. Getting elected is all about getting votes. Without votes, a politician is out of a job. People vote politicians in or out of office, mostly based on what they say. So every word a politician says has to be measured against the possibility that it may cost them votes. Now, some politicians get into politics with honorable motives, but the knowledge that they need to continually be reelected does force most politicians to measure their words very carefully because they know they have another election season coming every few years. When politicians are campaigning, they tell people what they believe the voters want to hear so they can get votes and get reelected. It's a pretty simple process. Personally, I've never really believed campaign promises because I know politicians are telling voters exactly what they want to hear most of the time. Some politicians make promises they know they aren't going to keep. Now, sometimes it's within their control. Sometimes the ability for a politician to keep their promise is out of their control. As I said, politicians have to learn how to choose their words very carefully and They can't say what they're thinking for fear of being heard or worse, recorded, saying something that's going to offend voters. If you've ever heard videos where a politician said some offhand or off-color remark when the microphone was live and they didn't know it, you know what I'm talking about. Politicians, when there's a microphone around and an audience listening, only want to say certain things. They do not want to offend or irritate voters. It's very embarrassing when a politician says something that they didn't intend the public to hear. Once they decide to run for office, you never really know what a politician is thinking. And the reason is because they can't externalize their internal thoughts. Once they're in office, then you begin to see who they really are. And you can tell what they stand for and who they really are by looking at their actions, looking at the way they vote, looking at the things they do while they're in office. We're used to hearing from people who think one thing but say something else. 
Politicians seldom dare to tell us what they really think. They can't afford to. They keep their true thoughts to themselves, unless it can benefit them in some way. And that leads us to believe that our politicians are civilized, moral, and disciplined. If they never say anything offensive, we think it's because their minds and their hearts are somehow better than the next guy. But that is only an illusion. Politicians think the same crude, lewd, sickening, hateful thoughts that the rest of us think. They've just learned how to internalize those thoughts because it doesn't benefit them to say them out loud. When you're a politician, you're not allowed to speak so honestly and frankly about your thoughts. And here's the problem with Donald Trump. People are evaluating him with the same criteria they would use to evaluate a politician. But Trump is not a politician. He's a New York businessman. Now, we're not going to let him off the hook, but we need to understand the mind of a politician and the mind of a New York businessman. If Trump never sees himself as a politician, he's never going to learn how to internalize the thoughts that we all have, but politicians know how to keep inside. Trump has been asked by Oprah repeatedly over the last 20 years if he would ever consider a run for the White House. His answer has always been no, unless things got so bad he felt he had no other choice. Now, does that sound like a man who has political aspirations? Trump isn't a man with political aspirations. He's never wanted to run for president. It's always been his goal to run his business. He's always preferred allowing somebody else to run the country as president. As long as there was someone capable and willing and able to do it, Trump was willing to let them do it because he has never really wanted to be president. When President Obama got elected, Trump said, you know, he sounds like a nice guy. Looks like he'll do a good job. Country's going to be in good hands. I'm not going to worry about it. At that point, Trump had no intention of running for president because he thought the current president was doing just fine. Because Trump has never identified himself as a politician who relies on what voters might think, he's never felt the need to guard his words. What people find so offensive about Trump is his honesty and his frankness. The fact that he doesn't keep those thoughts inside. He says outlandish things because he doesn't see himself as being in a position where he needs to tell people the things they want to hear in order to be elected. And I'm going to tell you this about Trump. He does not need the job of president because he's not a politician. Now, if you are a politician and your career is in the world of politics, you generally go from a small elected position in county or state government, Congress, Senator, you become a U.S. congressman or senator. The aspiration and the goal for most politicians is to continually seek higher offices. The ultimate office for an American politician is the presidency. So once a person enters the world of politics, they have to do everything they can to try to continue getting elected and continue rising to higher and higher levels of office. But Trump has never really wanted to be a politician. Trump is perfectly happy running his company, being the founder and CEO, building golf courses, hotels, and casinos. That's what he's done his whole life. He's, he's been content to do that. The reason why he's in politics is he feels there is nobody who is qualified right now to help get America out of the situation that it's in. So he has reluctantly joined the world of politics. But, and here's the big but, 
Trump doesn't actually need this job. If he is not elected, he'll go right back to being a businessman. He doesn't need the money. He doesn't need the fame. He doesn't need the prestige. There is nothing, actually, that Washington can give Trump that he doesn't already have. Unlike most politicians who desperately want to win the election, Trump is going to be fine if he doesn't win. And that is another reason why Trump is not measuring his words carefully. Trump is saying the things that he is saying because his perspective on the election is if people want to hear the truth and if my thoughts and my concerns resonate with the country, they're going to elect me. If my thoughts and concerns do not resonate with the voters, they're not going to elect me and that's fine. I'm probably not the right person for the job. So Trump is not a win-at-all-cost kind of a candidate. Trump is in this race because he thinks voters want to hear what he has to say. He is not interested in telling people what they want to hear. So if you're concerned that Trump might be lying to us in order to get our votes, that is probably the one thing you can know for certain he is not doing. Trump is brutally honest to a fault in just about everything that he says, and that is why he drives people crazy. Next, I'd like to look at the personality types, because I think if we can understand Donald Trump's personality type and the personality types of most of our presidents and other world leaders, that'll help give us a backdrop uh, and help us understand why Trump may or may not be the kind of person we need in the White House. Over the last few years, I've become very interested in studying the personality types, not just because I want to understand how my own mind works and how what, what makes me tick, but because I really want to understand what makes other people tick. I've found the Myers-Briggs personality typing to be really helpful. I draw a lot of my information from David Kersey, who is a psychologist who's made a career out of studying personality types. Kersey wrote a book called Please Understand Me, Volume 1, and then he wrote Volume 2 a few years ago. Kersey basically takes people, divides them up basically, based on three different criteria. He tries to find out if a person is an introvert or an extrovert. Now, that's the first thing that tends to mess a lot of people up, because with personality types, we're talking about generalities. We're not talking about exclusive things. Some people, uh, when they think about being an introvert or an extrovert, well, sometimes I'm an ex introvert and sometimes I'm an extrovert. Well, that's not really true. Uh, most of us are either an introvert or an extrovert. We're not both. And what we mean by introvert or extrovert is a general tendency of a person to either really enjoy and really get energy from being around a group of people or when you're around a group of people do you get drained emotionally and is it taxing for you an introvert generally speaking in social circumstances where they need to meet people and they have a lot of talk and conversation it tends to drain them emotionally more often than giving them energy and being excited they tend to walk away from that experience kind of emotionally drained. Um, an introvert tends to get energy and tends to be in their comfort zone more when they're alone by themselves in a secluded environment. Now, I am an extrovert by nature. However, I spend an enormous amount of time in my house, in my office, writing by myself. Even though I'm an extrovert and I get energized being around people, I love to be on social media. I love to connect with people. I love to talk. I like to go out and meet people when we go to restaurants. I'm always talking to the waitresses, talking to people. That is a hallmark of an extrovert personality. 
My wife is an introvert. She will go out with me to dinner. She is not going to be the one striking up conversations with strangers. She tends to kind of keep her, keep to herself more. She is okay being in social settings. She just doesn't get energized the way I do. We both like being alone at home in our little comfort zone. We both like going out, but she prefers keeping to herself more, and I prefer externalizing my life. That's the difference between introverts and extroverts. Um, the next way in which Kersey... Kersey also breaks the personality types down by the way in which people communicate. The two ways are either concrete or abstract. People naturally think and talk about the things that they're interested in. And if you listen to their conversations, there are two distinctions about the subject matter which they talk about. So some people talk primarily about the external concrete world of everyday reality. Facts and figures, work and play, home and family, the news, sports, weather. This is the who, what, when, where, and hows of life. Other people talk primarily about the internal abstract world of ideas. Theories, conjectures, dreams, philosophies, beliefs, fantasies, all the what-ifs and the what-might-bes of life. Some people are considered to be abstract communicators and some are considered to be concrete communicators. Kersey also breaks people up into two groups based on the way in which they act. One way is called utilitarian and the other way is uh, cooperative. Some people act primarily in a utilitarian or pragmatic manner. They do whatever needs to be done to get results. Whatever achieves the objectives they have in mind effectively and efficiently as possible. Only afterward do they check to see if they're observing the rules or going through the proper channels. Now, other people act primarily in a cooperative or socially acceptable manner. That is, they're always trying to do the right thing. They're trying to keep in agreement with social rules, conventions, code of conduct. They want to obey the laws and expectations of society. Only later do they concern themselves with how efficient or how effective their actions are. You can see that there's going to be some overlap in these, but generally you can sort of break people into one of these two categories. Now that we understand the ideas of utilitarian and cooperative, concrete and abstract, what Kersey does is he takes the 16 personality types and groups them together into four groups of four. If a person is a concrete cooperator, they're said to be a guardian personality. They speak mostly about their duties, their responsibilities, what they can keep an eye on, what they can take good care of, and they're careful to obey laws, follow the rules, and respect the rights of others. Guardians are people who are very motivated by a sense of duty and obligation to society. Now, if a person is an abstract cooperator, they're said to be an idealist. They speak mostly about what they hope for, what they imagine, what they dream is possible for themselves and for other people. They always want to act in good conscience. They always try to reach their goals without compromising their personal code of conducts and ethics. Those are an idealist. If a person is a concrete utilitarian, they're said to be an artisan. Artisans speak mostly about what they can see right in front of them, about what they can get their hands on. They will do generally whatever works, whatever gives them a quick, effective payoff, even if they have to bend the rules a little bit. So that's the artisan personality. The fourth personality type is the rational. They're abstract 
utilitarians. So a rational is a person who speaks mostly about what new problems intrigue them, what new solutions they can envision. They are problem solvers. They're always pragmatic. They're always practical. They act as efficiently as possible to achieve their objective. They tend to ignore rules and conventions of society, which they often see as arbitrary. If they need to accomplish something, they're not above bending the rules. So what you'll see in these four personality types is some groups. Um, the artisans and the rationals tend to be very pragmatic and practical, and they're willing to ignore the rules sometimes, ignore conventions of society because they want to accomplish things the most efficient way possible. Guardians and idealists have the thing, one thing in common, that is they're very uh, conscious of ethics, laws, rules, and code of conduct. They're not as concerned with efficiency as they are with following the rules. That's kind of a basic background of uh, personality types. David Kersey has analyzed the uh, personality types of most of the U.S. presidents. Most of the presidents in history have either come from the ranks of guardians or artisans. And that's not too surprising because guardians and artisans are the two largest groups. Um, there are very few uh, idealists and there are very few rationals. They make up a much smaller part of the population. Presidents who have been guardian personality types, George Washington, James K. Polk, William Howard Taft, Harry Truman, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, George H. Bush, and now some other uh, people in history, uh, President Leonid Brezhnev, Queen Elizabeth I, and Queen Elizabeth II were both guardians. Queen Victoria was a guardian. King George was a guardian. Tsar Nicholas II was a guardian. A number of Supreme Court judges, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and Thurgood Marshall were all guardians. A lot of people who have been in very positions of high power and authority tend to be come from guardians. Guardians, because they are really conscious of uh, the law, rules, order, and they're very motivated by a sense of obligation and duty to society, they tend to make very faithful good leaders, and that's why you see a lot of presidents who are of the guardian personality type. We're going to switch over to the idealist personality type. These are the, the dreamers and the uh, poets, people in society who have done some very noble things. Some famous idealists are Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, Pope John Paul II, Carl Jung, Jane Goodall, Soren Kierkegaard, Albert Schweitzer, Eleanor Roosevelt, and Mahatma Gandhi. As you can see, these people tend to be uh, individuals who are very much involved in causes, whether it's uh, eradicating hunger, eradicating poverty. Um, these people tend to be very uh, noble in their pursuit of uh, easing the suffering of other people. As far as I know, there's only one idealist uh, who's been a president in the last 100 years, and that's Jimmy Carter. Although Jimmy Carter was very well known for his work with Habitat for Humanity and building homes for homeless people, and he's done a lot of great work as a humanitarian. He is regarded by a lot of people as one of the weakest presidents we've ever had. It just seems like uh, idealists don't make very good national leaders. There have also been very few presidents that have been of the rational personality type. Rationals are deep thinkers and tend to be very bright people. 
They are generally highly educated, high IQs. Um, Albert Einstein, Isaac Newton, Stephen Hawking, Nikola Tesla, Charles Darwin, Friedrich Nietzsche, David Hume, Buckminster Fuller, Carl Sagan, uh, and the list goes on. Aristotle. Only a few presidents have been of the rational personality type. Uh, Thomas Jefferson is said to be uh, a rational. Abraham Lincoln, Dwight Eisenhower, Ulysses Grant, John Adams, and interestingly enough, Hillary Clinton is also believed to be irrational. When Barack Obama was running as a candidate for president in 2007, a lot of people pegged him as an extrovert and possibly as either a, an, as an artisan or a guardian personality type. Uh, he was meeting a lot of people, very social, going out, speaking. Uh, but when he got in office, a lot of people changed their assessment of him. Currently, as far as I know, most people who do personality assessments believe he's an introvert and he's actually irrational. These people tend to be very strategic, very analytic, good, good thinkers. And now I'm going to talk a little bit about a specific artisan personality type, which is the personality type of Donald Trump, which is the ESTP, which stands for Extrovert Sensing, Thinking, and Perceiving. I'm going to read to you a little bit of a description from the Personality Cafe about the ESTP personality type, or what David Kersey refers to as the artisan promoter. ESTPs are outgoing, straight-shooting types. They're enthusiastic and excitable. They're doers. They live in a world of action. They are blunt, straightforward risk-takers. They're willing to plunge into things and get their hands dirty. They live in the here and now, and they place little importance on introspection or theory. They look at the facts of a situation and they quickly decide what should and needs to be done. They execute the action and they move on to the next thing. This personality type has an uncanny ability to perceive people's attitudes and motivations. They pick up on little cues which go completely unnoticed by most other personality types. They're very aware of people's body language. They're typically a step ahead of the person they're interacting with. And they use this ability to get what they want out of a situation. Rules and laws are seen as guidelines for behavior rather than mandates. If the artisan promoter has decided that something needs to be done, then their do-it-and-get-on-with-it attitude takes precedence over rules. However, they tend to have their own strong belief system of right and wrong. They will doggedly stick to their principles. The rules of the establishment may hold little value to them, but their own integrity mandates that they are not going to, in any circumstance, do something that they feel to be wrong. The strengths of this personality type are that they tend to be very spontaneous, they enjoy being the center of attention, they're often the life of the party, and they're good at noticing specific details in any situation. They size up problems and quickly respond to it. They're better at immediate problem solving rather than long-range problem solving. They're very good negotiators, they're tough, they're logical decision makers when necessary, and they prefer a live-and-let-live attitude and lifestyle. They tend to be friendly, energetic, and active. They have really good powers of observation and the ability to be completely in the moment at all times. They're very realistic and pragmatic. They tend to speak directly and clearly without worrying about hidden meanings or ulterior motives. Now we're going to look at the weaknesses of the artisan promoter. They often avoid planning ahead any further than is absolutely necessary, and that is true of most artisans. My wife is an artisan personality type. 
you can't get her to schedule much of anything. I mean, she will sometimes schedule things, but keeping a schedule is very difficult for the artisan personality type because artisans are very spontaneous. The thing about the artisan is they tend to live in the moment and really their philosophy of life is carpe diem, seize the day. When an artisan wakes up in the morning, they don't really like to have a lot of things planned out. They tend to be very spontaneous. Whatever they feel like doing on a given day is what they're going to tend to do. So artisans as a personality type tend to not be very organized. They, they don't do a lot of long-term planning. They're also not very good with deadlines. Uh, they can be a little disorganized and uh, they can work at a frantic pace if a deadline is approaching. They don't tend to see future implications very well or read between the lines and discover subtle meanings that other people pick up on. The artisan promoter can appear to be insincere if they rely too much on humor rather than genuine emotion when dealing with others. They're often surprised to learn that they've offended or hurt the feelings of someone else, and sometimes they need to slow down and consider the consequences of their impulsive behavior before they act. Now, in the Republican debates, Donald Trump said a lot of things that people took offense at. If you looked at Trump's behavior, he seemed to be having fun, and he seemed to be taking these things in humor. But it was very clear from the people around him that they were not amused at what he was saying. That's part of this personality type. If they lean too much on humor, they can offend people and not even know that they're doing it. With the artisan promoter, they're often unaware of the long-term consequences of their actions. Uh, they don't always understand the far-reaching implications of their behavior. They often find themselves at odds with friends, colleagues, and employers. This personality type can be quickly become defiant, and anyone who's on the receiving end of their anger or retaliation may soon find they have a tiger by the tail. The first reaction of an artisan promoter, if they sense that they're being attacked, is to seek revenge by mocking other people's values. Because, as with all of the artisans, and actually the rationals, they don't tend to hold values too, too greatly. And this is something a lot of people have criticized Trump about. With a person who is an idealist or a guardian personality type, those personalities tend to highly value laws, morals, and ethics. But the artisan and rational personality types do not value laws, morals, and ethics the same way. They're all about action and getting things done. So if, a, uh, if an artisan promoter feels like he's being attacked, what he's going to do is he'll attack the values of the person that's attacking him. And they do tend to retaliate. And if you get on their bad side, they can be, it can be a very humiliating experience. Once again, in the debates, people went after Donald Trump. I remember in the very first uh, debate that was televised on Fox, Megyn Kelly went after Trump. Now, I watched all of the debates, and I was, quite frankly, I was shocked at the, some of the questions that were asked of Trump during that debate that was on Fox. I was, I was stunned when Megyn Kelly went after Trump with all these very personal uh, questions, which seemed to be an attack. Now, most people would not have reacted the way Trump did, but Trump's personality type is the kind that if you back him into a corner and he feels like he's being attacked, he is going to come after you. And that is what people saw when he was interacting with Megyn Kelly. He felt like he was under attack, and he went right back at her. And that's how Trump, I mean, he explained later, he says, look, 
if you pick a fight with me, if you punch me, I'm going to punch you back. That's just how these personality types are. They tend to be somewhat adversarial. They sense that they're being attacked. More weaknesses uh, of this personality type. They can become very competitive and they engage in one-upsmanship. You saw this with Jeb Bush. You saw it with Ted Cruz. As soon as Trump was ahead in the polls over anybody, he started to kind of rub their noses in it. That is the artisan promoter personality type. They love being on top. They love being number one. They love being the one who is being successful. And they will rub your nose in it if they get one up on you. Again, you have to understand that is just how these people are wired. The thing about the, the artisan uh, personality type is they do tend to make very effective leaders. They exude confidence. They have no problem being in uh, control and being in authority. Uh, presidents and other leaders who are of the artisan personality type were, and these people came in at very interesting times during history. This is something I, I would like you to think about. Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, was an artisan promoter. Same Turk personality type as Trump. He presided over the Great Depression of the 1930s. Theodore Roosevelt was also an artisan promoter. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt was actually involved in the uh, Mexican-American War and presided over the presidency right before World War I. John F. Kennedy, also an artisan promoter, just like Trump, presided over the Cuban Missile Crisis and our big showdown with Russia during the early 1960s. Lyndon Johnson was president during much of the Vietnam War. Ronald Reagan, another artisan, brought the Cold War to a close with Russia. Bill Clinton, George W. Bush. George Patton was also an artisan promoter. Same personality type as Trump. It's interesting when you look uh, his, at what Patton did during World War II. Patton was one of three generals who were very well known during the war. MacArthur and Eisenhower were the two other uh, well-known generals of that day. MacArthur and Eisenhower were, they were very, very cerebral generals. Great at strategy, great at tactics. They went on to have really illustrious uh, careers, both politically and militarily. Patton was given the name Blood and Guts because Patton was a, let's get in there, let's get it done, let's get this war over with. He was very, very demanding. He pushed his troops hard. If his troops showed signs of weakness, he was very hard on them. He was criticized for being overly harsh, but Patton and his effort in the war is one of the greatest stories of history. He was generally regarded as one of the best generals uh, the military has ever seen. One last person I wanted to bring up is Winston Churchill. He's also an artisan promoter, just like Trump. If you look at Winston Churchill, his rise to power came in a very unusual way. Churchill had always seen himself as a politician, but he wasn't very, very intellectual. And most of the time, artisan personality types are not intellectuals. Um, they don't tend to score really great academic scores. Uh, Churchill actually was raised in, a, in an aristocratic family in uh, England, and his grades were such that he could not get into Oxford or Cambridge, and that was a huge disappointment to his father. His father actually was disappointed with Winston in a lot of ways. But Churchill, he dreamed of being in Parliament. That was his dream. He wanted to be a politician. But Parliament wouldn't have him. He could not get elected. He ran for election uh, to Parliament and lost. Churchill decided to go to a military academy and then volunteered in the army. He actually joined the cavalry. 
Uh, he fought during World War I in many different theaters, was actually taken prisoner, put in a POW camp in Pretoria, South Africa, and then escaped from the POW camp. When he returned home to England, he was celebrated as a war hero, and he was immediately elected to Parliament. So he got his dream. The funny thing about Churchill was during the 1930s, uh, 1933, Hitler was elected as the leader of uh, Germany. And Churchill, from the very beginning, suspected Hitler was up to something. He did not trust him, and he had an innate sense something was going to go wrong. He tried to warn Europe for six years that Nazi Germany could not be trusted and that Hitler would eventually do something that was going to be so outlandish it would have to be dealt with. Nobody wanted to hear Churchill. He eventually lost his seat in Parliament. He made a living mostly as a writer and as a speaker from 1933 to 1939. Churchill felt very rejected, and he was a, he was a deeply bitter man. He actually turned to painting to uh, calm his anxieties, which never left him. All during the 1930s, Churchill was convinced something was going to happen with Nazi Germany that was going to devastate Europe. And as much as he tried to convince people, no one would listen to him. Well, in 1938, Germany uh, occupied part of Czechoslovakia. The then Prime Minister of Great Britain signed an agreement called the Munich Treaty, which allowed Germany to occupy part of Czechoslovakia, but no further. It was a concession on the part of uh, Great Britain because they really didn't want war. And here's the thing. Everyone in Europe was so fed up and sick of war after World War I. World War I was devastating. Um, Tens of millions of people were killed, property destruction. It was, it was very, very difficult. And people were rebuilding from the war all during the 20s and 30s. Nobody wanted to entertain the possibility of another war. So when Churchill was warning Europe about um, Hitler, nobody wanted to hear it because they did not want to get another war. So in 1938, the Munich Agreement was signed. In 1939, Hitler invaded Poland. And when he did, everyone knew Churchill was right. So King George phones Churchill up, has him come down, has a meeting with him, and asks Churchill, do you know why I'm meeting with you? Churchill knew, but he didn't want to let on, so he said, no, sir, I don't. I have any idea. King George asked him to be the prime minister and to put together a government that could deal with what they knew was going to happen, that uh, eventually Hitler would try to take over all of Europe, and he did. So Churchill was very reluctantly put into the office of prime minister. He, was, uh, he rose to prominence uh, as a speaker and encourager of the people of Europe, um, basically telling them to hang on as long as they could and never surrender. Churchill was classic of the artisan promoter, self-confident, always believing in himself and believing that we, we could get through this. He was bigger than life. And he was able to get, uh, help Europe get through the, the worst part of the war until the United States came, joined the war. And then they uh, were able to successfully push back the German invasion of Europe. Interesting thing about Churchill, as soon as the war was over, Churchill's party was booted out and the other party took over and he was no longer prime minister. He spent the next, uh, oh gosh, seven or eight years um, painting and speaking, came to the States and what a lot of people don't know about Churchill during World War II was Russia, led, which was led by Stalin, uh, Britain, which was led by Churchill, 
and the United States, which was led by Roosevelt. Those three powers were able to defeat Germany. But Churchill sensed during World War II that Stalin was up to something. Because of the way Stalin acted during their many meetings, Churchill had a sense that Stalin was going to be a problem in the future. He tried to warn Roosevelt, and Roosevelt wouldn't hear it. After the war, Churchill came to the U.S. and talked to Truman and said, look, Stalin is a problem, and as much as nobody wants to get into another war, we just finished World War II, we have another problem. Stalin is going to try to take most of Europe and Asia. He's going to try to destroy the freedom that they just won. Well, it took a long time for Churchill to convince anyone that Stalin was a problem, but we entered the Cold War a few years later, and Churchill was once again made prime minister during the Cold War. So it's very interesting because nobody really wanted Churchill to be prime minister. Nobody really wanted him in parliament. He was a very, uh, very pushy, very obstinate, very self-centered, outspoken kind of a person, very much like Donald Trump. But when the chips were down, they knew they could count on Churchill to get them through. And as soon as the crisis was over, they got rid of him. They did not want him in office. Now, this is an interesting topic I'd like to spend a few more minutes uh, discussing. I want to talk a little bit about war and the type of war that we are involved in right now that a lot of people are not really aware of. In the 20th century, war was a continually evolving thing. During World War I, there was a thing invented called trench warfare, which had never been used before. Basically, you dig long, dig long trenches, fill them full of soldiers, and try to hold the line as long as you can. No one had ever done that before. World War II was much more an aerial war, a lot more use of bombers, a lot more use of submarines, battleships. It was more of a naval war. Um, there was a great increase in technology in uh, tanks and artillery. World War II was very different from World War I in, in a technological respect. Then there was Vietnam. And Vietnam, war technology changed again, at least for the United States. We got involved in a, in a war in the jungles of Southeast Asia. And we got into a guerrilla warfare. There weren't trenches. It was hard to move artillery and tanks. It was difficult to bomb anything. The North Vietnamese did an excellent job of hiding and setting traps, and it made it very difficult to win that war. The technology that came out of Vietnam was actually the use of napalm and Agent Orange, because the biggest problem America had was they were in a jungle and they couldn't see what they were trying to, they couldn't see the target. So they tried to basically defoliate the jungle so they could find the people they were going after. It was a radical change in the strategy of war that they'd never had to do before. War has continued to evolve. And in 2001, when the Twin Towers were attacked uh, by airplanes, and the Pentagon was also attacked, uh, four airplanes were hijacked, thousands of people were killed in one day. No tanks, no artillery, no bombs. Basically, a, a group of terrorists snuck their way into a country, waited for the right time, and then planned a very strategic assault. They could have done a lot more damage, but the damage they did was, was big enough. And George Bush, who was president at the time, declared a war on terrorism. It's a different kind of war. And here's the thing. We have been in a war of terror for the last 15 years. 
and many people do not know that we're at war. You know, it's, it's kind of strange. You hear politicians talk about the war on terror. And for the average person, we don't even, most of us don't know what that means. But what it means is, instead of our enemy having a large uh, army, a large navy, a large air force, and threatening to come and take over our country, the terrorist war is completely different in philosophy and objective. What terrorists want to do is get into your country, gather some weapons, whatever weapons they have, whether it's guns, bombs, knives. Ideally, what they want is weapons of mass destruction, but a lot of terrorists have had difficulty getting their hands on weapons of mass destruction. If they had them, they would use them. But right now, right now, the war on terror is being fought with whatever they have. So in France, in Germany, in England, all through Europe, the, the terrorists have figured out a way to strike terror into the hearts of people by bombings, by shootings, by using axes, by using whatever they have at their disposal. We are in a war, and many people are not aware of it. And it's a different kind of war than we've ever fought before. And we've been in this war for at least 15 years. Now, the question is, what does this war look like in the future? And how are we going to win this war? Well, the only way you can win a war where a terrorist wants to come into your country and kill uh, hundreds or possibly thousands of people is to either keep them out of your country or identify them and incarcerate them once you find them. Finding a terrorist once they're inside your country is very hard. Now, you don't hear about this much in the media, but uh, the FBI and the CIA and our intelligence agencies have thwarted a lot of uh, terrorist plots. Um, people don't realize how many they've actually apprehended and, and prosecuted. But the ones that we don't find out about, you hear about in the newspaper and read on social media. So the thing is, we've been in this war, and the question is, how do we win it? How do you win this war? Well, if ISIS really is the main threat right now of war, and if they're the ones that are um, arming and training the terrorists, then ISIS has to be removed. Now, it's easy to underestimate the strength of ISIS, and uh, the Obama administration probably has somewhat underestimated the resolve and the strength of ISIS. But I want to take a look at um, what has happened in the last 15 years as far as uh, the war on terror. So after the Twin Towers were destroyed, President Bush went on the offensive, and we went into war on a huge scale in the Middle East and Asia. Whether or not you agree with the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, the thing is, it's history. We've done it. We've been there. It's over now. We had a president at the time who responded to terrorism and said, we are at war and we're going to wipe out the terrorists. Now, at the time that President Bush was in office, his policy reflected the philosophy of American citizens. American citizens felt like they were unsafe and they were at risk and they wanted a president who could take their concerns seriously and address them. By the time 2007 arrived, the consensus in America was we don't need to be at war anymore. President Obama ran on the promise of 
getting us out of the wars and bringing our troops home. He was true to his word. He ended the wars overseas and brought our troops home. At the time that President Obama was in office, his policies reflected the concerns of the country. People were tired of war. They didn't want to be at war anymore. They wanted the troops home, and that's what the president gave them. Now there's been a change in the concerns of American people. Polls reveal that terrorism and illegal immigration are the greatest concerns for Americans right now, followed by the economy and, more recently since the Hillary scandal, corruption in government. President Obama just this week said the world is a much safer place than it was eight years ago. Whether that's true or not is irrelevant. The president's views and his current policies no longer match the concerns of the people. People are concerned about terrorism, national security. The president is not concerned about terrorism and national security. So it's time for a change of guard in leadership simply because our leadership does not currently reflect the concerns and views of the citizens. So this fall, you can be guaranteed that people are going to elect someone whose views and policies are going to match their concerns. Now, if you look at all the candidates that are running and ask yourself, which one has voiced the concerns of the people? Trump is the only one talking openly about the things that Americans are concerned about. People are naturally going to want a leader who has the same concerns they do, and hopefully a plan to fix them. Now, speaking of war, some people are concerned that Trump may be a warmonger and he's simply going to get us involved in more wars. Well, let's go back to the Republican debates and look at the feud that's been going on between Trump and Jeb Bush. The reason why Jeb Bush and Donald Trump have been at each other's throats for the last, I don't know, six months is because Trump went on the record and said that the wars that Bush got us involved in, we never should have gotten involved in. In fact, he said, before we got involved in those wars, he went on the record and told people, we had no business going over there and getting involved in these wars. When he questioned George Bush's policies and the wars that he got us involved in, Jeb Bush went ballistic. And so did a lot of conservatives. Because, well, it's kind of taboo if you're a conservative to go and attack the record of uh, a man who is pretty much hated by, by liberals but loved by conservatives. And when Trump disagreed with Bush's policy on, on war, his brother Jeb went ballistic. And they got into a fight, and that has been going on since then. Now, if you do not believe we should be involved in all these wars overseas. Trump happens to agree with you. Trump is not a warmonger. Trump has said a lot of the wars we got involved in, we never had any business being in in the first place. So if Trump is going to fight a war, it's going to be a war that needs to have a clear objective and it needs to benefit us. And it needs to be something that the U.S. citizens are seriously, significantly concerned about and has to be addressed. And the only war that Trump has talked about is the war on terror. He simply has said over and over again, we are at war with ISIS. We have got to eliminate them. We don't have a choice. If we don't eliminate them, they're going to come over here with bigger weapons and they're going to eliminate us. So if, if you're concerned about Trump 
saying or doing something to get us in a war, I don't think that's a serious concern. The last thing I want to talk about is the accusation that Trump is a xenophobe and a racist. Now, if you don't know what a xenophobe is, it's an irrational fear. Any phobia is an irrational fear. It's a fear someone has that is not logical or rational. It's an unjustified fear. So a xenophobe is an irrational fear of other nations, cultures, and ethnicities. So the allegation is that Trump is a xenophobe. And primarily those allegations have been based on the fact that Trump has said he wants to build a wall on the Mexican border and he wants to temporarily put a moratorium on allowing uh, immigrants to come into the country if they're coming in from nations where Islamic terrorists are known to be active. Based on those two things, people have accused Trump of being a xenophobe and a racist. So let's take a closer look at Trump and see if these accusations hold water. Now, Trump has been a world traveler his entire life. He seems to genuinely enjoy other cultures and what they're able to accomplish. Again, in the Republican debates, one of Trump's biggest things that he said is, look, I go to other countries, I go to their, visit their airports, I see their cities. Their airports are immaculate. Their cities are beautiful. They've done such great things. Why can't we do that here? Why is our country in, in such disrepair? Literally, he said, it's a disgrace what we've got going on here. Now, Trump has gone to other nations and other cultures and built casinos, hotels, resorts, on just about every continent in the world. He married a woman from another country. He loves to travel, loves other cultures, admires what other cultures have accomplished, and wants us to be like them. Now, I want to ask you, does that sound like someone who has an irrational fear of other cultures? Now, on Trump's desire to build a wall down here in the southern border, the thing is this. We actually have a border uh, between the U.S. and Mexico. For hundreds of miles, there is a fence. There's, our, there's part of a wall in different places. I've been down to the border here in Arizona, and uh, I can tell you it's, uh, it's an interesting place if you've never been there. The concern that Americans have, particularly people in California, Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona, border states, is we have an out-of-control problem with crime, with human trafficking, with drugs, with crime of every kind coming across the border. This year, uh, on Memorial Day weekend, which was back the last weekend in May, we received a notification from the Pinal County Sheriff's Department that drug gangs had come into uh, Pinal County and they're expecting a great upsurge in violence. Uh, according to the sheriff's office, they said Mexican cartels were sending uh, groups of assassins to kill rival gang members who were stealing their drugs. Uh, they expected the armed forces to target what they call rip crews, who ambush other transport gangs and take their drugs and money. Uh, they were warning civilians who were going out camping or hiking on the trails in Pinal County to be on the lookout and to carry weapons uh, and defend yourself if necessary if you ran into these you know, drug lords um, and assassins. This is the kind of thing that we're dealing with down here in Arizona and in New Mexico on a regular basis.
There are parts of southern Arizona down near the border that are under the control of drug cartels. Uh, law enforcement doesn't even go in there. Border agents have been able to do nothing to get rid of them. The, the, this is in the United States. This is not in Mexico. It, it's hard to understand the scope of what's going on. We have a border that in many places you can simply walk right through. There's nothing to stop you. And the thing with Trump, I think, is that I don't think Trump is actually uh, a racist. I don't think Trump wants to keep all Mexicans out of the country. Trump has said over and over again, look, we are a nation of laws. And if we don't have a border, we're not a nation at all. A, a good example of border control is what happened in Australia. Australia had been uh, having very lax enforcement of their uh, borders. Uh, people were coming into Australia. They were they were taking advantage of healthcare system. They were taking advantage of assistance, and Australia was struggling financially. There were a lot of people who were being killed. There were boats that were adrift at sea. It was very expensive. It was time consuming, and it taxed their resources to deal with all of the people who were coming into Australia illegally. Well, last year they decided they were done. They're going to enforce their border laws strictly. They're not going to allow any more boats to land on the coast. They're not going to allow any more uh, people to come into the country illegally. If they found a boat, they were going to tow it back to where it came from. If they found uh, people who were there illegally, they would deport them and take them back to where they came from. Uh, it cost a little bit of money, but what happened was uh, they saw a huge change in the number of people who were trying to come in illegally, in the amount of money they were paying, paying out in health care and other services. It really had a huge impact on their budget. Uh, they were way over budget, and they were able to get their budget back in, uh, under control, mainly because they started enforcing their border laws, and they refused to allow illegal immigrants to come into the country. Now, this is in Australia, and this was, I think, happened in 2015. Nations have found that if they do not enforce their border laws, they end up paying a huge price for it. And I think the only thing Trump is really trying to get at, and look, this has been something that has been debated by Congress for decades. People have been very angry and upset that there's all this talk about revamping the immigration system, revamping the, the way that borders are managed. Nothing has ever been done about it. Nothing effective. And I think Trump has sensed that a lot of people are sick and tired of this and they would just like it to be resolved and settled once and for all. Trump has said repeatedly, he has nothing against legal immigration. And I think he's sincere. I think if his desire to, to build a wall is simply to keep the drugs and the gangs and uh, the murder and the human trafficking down to a minimum, that kind of stuff is destroying our country. There's no other way to look at it. I, I really do think Trump only wants to bring the crime and the problems under control so that we can live in peace here within our own borders. There is one more thing I want to talk about with respect to Donald Trump and Washington, and that is, since the Hillary email scandal, people are more and more concerned about government corruption. Some people believe that the only a person who comes from outside the political system can come in and make the changes necessary in government. Uh, Trump is an outsider. Even though he understands how the political system works because he is a successful businessman and he has had to work with government, he's never been a part of government. He understands it, how it works from an outsider's perspective.
And the other thing is, as I said earlier, Trump doesn't really need this job. Trump has a very successful career. Uh, if we decide to put him in office, he can go into Washington really with nothing to lose. He doesn't need to worry about being reelected. He doesn't need to worry about irritating and making people angry if he decides to go to Washington and start making some changes, making some cuts, eliminating uh, unnecessary departments, changing the shape of Washington, and removing a lot of the corruption, the waste, and inefficiency. And see, the thing is, Trump is an artisan, and artisans do not like inefficiency. They want things to be efficient, they want things to work well, to be a well-oiled machine. And it could be that Trump is qualified to go into Washington and make some changes that are really huge. So that is my summary of Donald Trump. Trump is by no means uh, a perfect man. He has a lot of flaws, he has a lot of weaknesses, look like the rest of us. But I think we need to take a good hard look at where America is trying to go and who is qualified to take us where we need to go. Um, there are alternatives. There is a libertarian candidate and Hillary Clinton is running uh, for office. She has a lot of experience in government. There are many people who will vote for Hillary. I just want to thank you for uh, listening to me, for hearing me out. I'm not saying that I think Trump is the ideal candidate, but I, th I suspect that God has seen the things that are about to come upon America. And I suspect that he's preparing us for those challenges that lie ahead. I think Trump may be the person who is most uniquely suited to handle those challenges. So all I would ask you to do between now and November is pray and ask God to show you his heart for the elections, his heart for the nation. Ask him to show you the issues that we're going to be facing and ask him to show you what his solution is. That may or may not look like Donald Trump in the White House. I don't know. But what I would ask you to do is keep an open mind, pray, and let God show you the truth. Thanks for your time. I will catch you next week. This is Praying Medic out. Well, folks, that is our show for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for dropping by. If you're new to the podcast and you haven't been to my website, you might drop by and check out the articles I have there. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can contact me at admin at prayingmedic.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at prayingmedic.com. You can also contact me on Facebook and Twitter. I'd like to thank you again for dropping by. I hope you enjoyed the show.